March 1st, welcome to the Just Baseball Show. We are doing top 10 infields as well as some spring training overreactions. We have our managing editor, Ryan Finkelstein, who created the top 10 infields article, which you can find on JustBaseball.com. And of course, Arm and I are going to go over it, say what we like, say what we don't like, a good old-fashioned debate. But gentlemen, it's March 1st. It feels like baseball is officially back once we hit the third month of the year. Spring training is starting to run rampant. We are so close to actual games. Opening day is March 30th. 30 days left. Aram, first spring training overreaction because Jack kind of started doing this, and it's so much fun because we see all of Twitter overreacting to everything that we see in spring training. And it's really hard to just gather good spring training analysis. So it's much more fun to overreact while also going over some of our favorites so far. So Aram, what's your first spring training overreaction? Oh God. It's funny because we mentioned this before and I was like, okay, I'm sure I'll just have one right off the top. Um, but I I guess the the thing that stood out to me the most so far um is is that Casey Schmidt is going to win rookie of the year. That's mm-hmm. my um and, and honestly, like it's an overreaction, but I kind of believe it. Um, Giants prospect, third baseman Casey Schmidt, 109 mile an hour home run. He's a freak. I'm gonna say that's my overreaction thus far is Casey Schmidt winning rookie of the year in the National League. I love it. It's it's overreacting at its finest. Yeah. Ryan, what's yours? I will say I was thinking in my head, I'm like, arm's gonna say Casey Smith, arm's gonna say Casey Smith. So I'm I'm proud of myself on that one. And he knows where I'm going. Yep. It's Ronnie Mauricio. It has to be two home runs over 400 feet. I was there on Sunday and saw the first one loud off the bat. I texted Arm immediately. Of course, I said, dude, he just hit one like Pete Alonzo. And it was the first time a man has hit a home run that far, 450 feet with an exit velo of 110 since Pete Alonzo. So obviously he's that good. But the real comp that's going to blow Arm's mind because that's not it. I've seen a few Mets fans comparing the swing path of Ronnie Mauricio to Jordan Alvarez, which is yes. ludicrous. That. <laughs> ludicrous. But that's exactly what we're doing. Spring training over reactions. The next Jordan. Aram. <laughs> Come on. Ronnie Mauricio has taken years <laughs> off my life. Um, I, I still can't believe this guy's 21. Um, I, it, he looks like he looks great. Uh, Jordan, I agree. I'm in. Right, I'll just leave it at that. So I compared Brandon fought yesterday to Aaron Nola after two innings with a couple of strikeouts and no earned runs allowed. My next incredible spring training comparison, Ricky Tiedemann of the Blue Jays is Chris Sale and (laughs) prime Chris Sale. The Chris Sale who rattled off an incredible, remember that, uh, that, like batch of starts he had. I think it maybe was in 2018 where he went like eight starts and allowed like one earned run and had 10 strikeouts. Like per. Every single time. That, yes. 
that's the Ricky Tiedemann I saw after two innings touching 97, 98, 99 miles an hour with the fastball. Jack even posted on Twitter. He's got a sick arm tat. Yeah. Chris Sale doesn't have that. So that means he already has a leg up on Chris Sale. But yeah. better than an arm up. Oh, I missed that. That's a great one. Just missed that. That was a layup. Just, just, and I it was a layup it. right there. And you just you just passed it right back to me. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, like I, the reason why I like these overreactions is because all three are actually interesting storylines. Ronnie Mauricio is coming off a great winter um, and all of a sudden looks like a better hitter. Ricky Tiedemann, I, I knew he had mid-90s. I didn't know he had that 99 juice in the tank like that. And it was it was Bayou on Javi Baez. And then, of course, I mean, I, I'm a big Casey Schmidt fan. So I like, I'm glad you brought up Tiedemann because I was literally kicking myself right after that. I was like, wait, why didn't I mention Tiedemann? I, I tweeted out that video of him gassing up Javi. Uh, that was fun to watch. And I, I think he might break into the big leagues at some point this year for the Jays. Yeah, I think, I think he will too, because the Blue Jays could certainly use him, yes. at least a lefty in that rotation instead of a guy, maybe like Yusei Kikuchi, even though another spring training overreaction from Blue Jays fans, Yusei Kikuchi grabs a beard. He's also grabbing fives and sixes on the radar gun, 95, 96 miles an hour. He could be back. At least that's the scuttlebutt out of spring training. And that's why we love spring training. But in this episode, we are talking top 10 infields for the 2023 MLB season. Again, our managing editor, Ryan Finkelstein, wrote the article. And Aram and I are going to debate with him. Ryan, you did top five double play combinations. Uh, I guess talk about kind of the differences between those two lists. Of course, we have first base and third base. But how did you come up with this with these rankings? I'll tell you, the, the double play combinations came pretty easily to me where I really didn't need much input to kind of solidify my list, where this one I did text all you guys this morning because I, was, I wasn't I was confident with my list. And the one change we made came later, the three and the four spot. Uh, but overall, this ends up being the same list I, I texted you guys this morning. It was tough, though, differentiate. I found eight teams that I felt pretty good about. And then finding the ninth and the 10th team and who the honorable mentions were was really tough. There's a lot of good infields in baseball right now, and it's really that that weighing kind of the, the top-end talent and also like who the hole is. And there's a lot of infields that have three really good players and maybe some question marks, so it's, it was trying to kind of gauge that to, to come up with these rankings. And Arm, you had a question for Ryan about the catching position, whether or not the catcher should be added to this, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that was that's the hard part because we also – we rank batteries, right? So – uh, you know, that that makes it almost a separate thing. But the catching aspect of it, I think, just makes it um, almost too much of a mental exercise. Like it just almost takes the fun out of it because it just it becomes so complex. But, um, you know, I, I, it is an interesting question that is like so surface level and basic, like as a catcher part of the infield. And I'm like starting to think like, wait, 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 wait a second. I'm like almost contemplating now everything in my life. Uh, but I, I like the idea of separating catcher. Just because also there's a huge drop off sometimes uh, when you have like an elite catcher versus some of the other catchers that we're seeing other teams roll out there. And it's like, how do you weigh that against a first baseman versus a second baseman? So I'm glad we kind of separated that from this. Yeah, Ryan, I remember you talking pre-record about that. Who were some of the teams that the catcher just put it over the top and made you think, well, we can't include catchers because then it's more of a catcher ranked list because of how impactful they are in an infield compared to a lot of teams who don't have that great of catchers but have a great infield yeah yeah arm says it was a mental exercise it did break my brain when he wanted me to include catchers originally and i was trying to figure it out but the, the problem is you have a team like the phillies who we're going to get into in the minute as the first honorable mention 
if JT Ramuto is included, yeah. they might be top five yeah. with the Braves with Sean Murphy. They might be the best infield. You know, you look at, at a team like the Blue Jays with Kirk and Jansen, and they might shoot up these rankings. And even the one that I was telling Peter before, like Gunner and Adley, are they a top 10 infield because those two guys are that awesome, but then the rest of the infield kind of falls off. So it just, it, it goes a little bit too heavily on the teams that have a good catcher yeah. because there's a lot of good infields in baseball that just have a defensive minded catcher back there. That's going to give them nothing offensively. Yeah. And we'll start with the honorable mentions of, and we'll start with that first team that you mentioned who has a really good catcher in JT Romuto, but comes in on the honorable mentions when we're just looking at first base, second base, third base, and shortstop. Of course, the Phillies have Trey Turner at short. They have Alec Bohm at third, Bryson Stott at second base, and Reese Hoskins at first base. Outside of Trey Turner, because he's the clear superstar here, you could put us three in an infield with Trey Turner, and it's probably going to make the honorable mentions. But there is no weak spots in this Phillies infield. But I think the only problem is you got two really young guys who haven't fully proved it on the big stage. And Reese Hoskins is a solid first baseman, not with the glove, but with the bat. But he's not one of the better first basemen. Like, he didn't make our top ten I assume, Ryan, that's why Phillies make the honorable mention. 100%. It comes down to what we've seen, and we just haven't seen enough from Stott and Bohm, even though we think that they can both take leaps this year, and it will be a clear top 10 infield. So that's really all it came down to. And then if Hoskins was like a league average defender, and we're looking at a guy who's posting, you know, four and a half win seasons instead of two and a half win seasons, then maybe they would crack the top 10 still. He's a really good offensive player. Turner's amazing but just short of these other 10 teams that we ended up going with here. Aram, we spoke a lot about Bryson Stott in the double play combination, yeah. uh, but we haven't really talked about Alec Bohm and I guess what we could see from him this year. I know you're really high on a guy like Brian Hayes. You love his breakout potential this year. Is a guy like Alec Bohm making that category for you, or are you a little bit more down or maybe even higher on him than Brian Hayes? I'm, I like Brian more, especially with the defense that he brings, right? I mean, like if both of these guys don't hit that well. Obviously, you're going to get way more value from Cabrian, but Cabrian also hits the ball harder than he does, than, than Bohm does. So I think there's more power potential there too. Um, obviously, Bohm has great bat-to-ball skills, but at, at third base too, that's the thing is like, if you're a third baseman, you got to be slugging. And and I like Bohm, but you got to see more than, than the 398 slugging percentage from third base, right? And I know he got a little bit better as the year went on, but I think he can be an above average hitter, but I don't know if that's an impactful third baseman. And you have that question. I think Stott's going to be an above average second baseman, but he hasn't fully done that yet. Those are enough questions to keep him out of the top 10 for me. But I I do like Bohm, not that much compared to some of the other guys, though. And when you start to rank all the third basemen, you realize, eh, do I really like Bohm that much? Um, He's more of just kind of a little bit above replacement level at this point. I hope he makes that leap this year, though. He does have it in the tank. Uh, the next honorable mention, Ryan, I'm going to go straight to you for this because I'm kind of unsure how it's going to form, right? We know up the middle with the Chicago Cubs, Dan Swanson at shortstop and Nico Horner at second base. One of the best double play combinations was on our list. I think they were an honorable mention, but they were arguable for top five due to their defense and the offensive upside. But it's first base and third base that I think we're all still wondering Who's going to play the position? They brought in Trey Mancini and Eric Hosmer is kind of this old platoon to, you know, form a first base trio with Matt Mervis, who's one of their top prospects. Also, if you want to Cubs fans, if you want to listen 
to Matt Mervis more, you could go check out the call-up. Arum has a great podcast with Matt Mervis. And then at third base, is it going to be Morel? Is it going to be Patrick Wisdom? Who's going to play third base? Who's going to play first base? There's a lot of good players in the mix, but I'm just curious how it's going to end up. Yeah, I, I think the first thing I write in this piece is I say, if only the Cubs didn't sign Eric Hosmer. <laughs> it's nothing against Hosmer. It's just the fact that he's blocking Mervis. If yeah. we had Mervis locked into this infield opening day, I'd have a hard time not putting them in the top 10 with Mervis, with Horner, with Swanson. And then obviously I'd prefer, I think, Morell at third. But even then, just the potential that Mervis would bring here with Hosmer and potentially Wisdom starting the season – it's just hard to to place them in the top 10, but would they finish the year in the top 10 if Mervis is the rookie of the year and Horner takes a little bit of a leap and Swanson is at least 80% of what he just was? I think there's a great chance they could finish the year in the top 10. Aram, two questions for you. One, who's going to play third base for the Cubs? And number two, power rank Cubs first baseman, Eric Hosmer, <laughs> Trey Mancini, and Matt Mervis. You know where I'm ranking that. But first, I'll start with the with the first question. It's funny, like before you asked me that, I was going to chime in and say, like, would either of you be surprised if Edwin Rios is the starting third baseman by June? No, like, he's got power. He's got power. And, and also, it's like that kind of shows you where they're at there, right? Morell, I'm really worried about the approach or lack thereof. I think he could just use some more time and triple. Wisdom, we kind of know what he is. I think Rios could honestly be wisdom, maybe better, uh, and also is, is a couple years younger, has been banged up. I would like to see a little bit more of Rios, honestly, at this point. Um, in, in terms of power ranking the first baseman, I, I think Mancini has a chance to to contribute, you know, above average right away. Uh, but that said, I'd way rather roll the dice and see what Matt Mervis can do. It would go Matt Mervis, Trey Mancini, and then way down there, way down there is Eric Hosmer. Uh, Mervis has already been putting together some great at-bats. This guy's been good every single stop. So uh, I, I hope they just platoon Mancini and Mervis by June as well, because I think they're going to realize that Hosmer is just not it. And it definitely hurts the infield. But I think the third base situation is even more pressing because it's like we could legitimately – but nominate three names of guys that could potentially be starting at third. And I think that's too, too much uncertainty for a top 10 infield. I do think a pretty interesting platoon though, would be Rios and wisdom because you hit wisdom against lefties and Rios against righties. They're both going to strike out, but they're both going to hit some bombs. That's a decent platoon. And then you, allow Christopher Morrell to play more positions because what makes Morrell so incredible is that he can hit but he can play so many different positions not at a crazy elite level but he can at least be replacement level at second base at third base in the outfield which I think is more important for the Cubs overall to give some guys some days off so let's move to the Dodgers and the Dodgers I assume Fink probably fell out of the top 10, unfortunately, because Gavin Lux in spring training just tore his ACL and is now out for the year, which is such a big blow to them. Of course, losing Trey Turner in free agency, Gavin Lux was their number one prospect at one point and was expected to take over the shortstop duties. Of course, they trade for Miguel Rojas to help you know shoulder the load in case Lux wasn't fully ready to go. But it was looking like he was. I mean, he had some high exit velos in spring training before ultimately going down. 
And now you look at second base, like, what are they going to do there? I know they have Max Muncy in the infield. Of course, they have Freddie Freeman. Miguel Vargas is another name to watch out for. They have guys, but we're used to the Dodgers having so many reinforcements coming up for the minor leagues with these injuries and the loss of some huge free agents. It looks a lot more barren than in previous years, right? Yeah, I, I think originally we were still going to have them as an honorable mention, but the mention was going to be, look, I still believe that they're going to get top 10 production from this infield because, you know, you look at Vargas as a guy that could step up in a big way, but then you have Rojas as this high floor, either if they put him at second base or shortstop with Lux. Defensively, you know, he's going to be great and going to be at least close to an average bat. Now you lose Lux, and there's just that much more pressure on Vargas is where this, this conversation should go to arm because – they need Vargas to step up. I think that they still deserve mentioning because Freddie Freeman is part of this infield and Max Muncy is due for some positive regression. But now it really hinges on what you're going to get from Vargas. 100%. I, I, so Vargas is a guy I really believe in. I do really believe in the, in the hit tool. I think he's going to be a good player. But at that point, too, like, you know, sticking with the trend, I believe in Mervis. I, I believe in, in Bryson Stott. But it doesn't mean that that's a top 10 infield, right? I'm not, we're not here to believe we're here to, to rank proven infields. Like that's how you crack the top 10, a middle infield of Miguel Vargas and Miguel Rojas cannot be a ranked infield in this game, right? Like that Miguel Rojas is a guy that the Marlins didn't want. He's a great defender. Uh, and I think it's the great thing that they made this trade because he can hold it down for them. But I think, you know, if, if Vargas is banged up or, or doesn't come out of the gate the way that, that they were hoping Chris Taylor is probably going to end up being an option at second, too. And he was kind of disappointing last year. We have to see how he bounces back. At least they have some other options in that regard. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is not quite the Dodgers team that we were accustomed to. And I think everybody was expecting Lux to be that breakout guy this year and kind of push the Dodgers back up to that to that firepower that we're used to seeing. And, you know, it's a good team. Obviously, it's a really good team. But um, I think this is one of the weaker Dodgers teams we've seen in a while. And the infield's a part of that. Here's an infield I would take over both the Cubs and the Dodgers right now. I would take the Mariners infield over both of these. You have Eugenio Suarez at third. J.P. Crawford, of course, is kind of the weak spot there, but he's still, I would say, the average shortstop in Major League Baseball. Like it might be the new barometer. Than, the new barometer, the new barometer right? right? Like yeah. everyone worse than J.P. Crawford is a below-average shortstop. Everyone better than J.P. Crawford is an above-average shortstop. But Colton Wong, I would say, is above average second baseman, or at least close to it. And then you have Ty France, who made our honorable mentions list. Like, there are a lot of guys who are near the top 10 or Mm -hmm. in the top 10 of our list. Like, and they don't really have any question marks like these other teams. Mm -hmm. I would go with the Mariners. Do you agree with the Mariners arm, or do you like these honorable mentions as stated? It it lacks the the star power in the infield, but I I also love... France, what do you mean? Ty France hits. What do you mean? Yeah, that's I, I do love Ty France. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> I think the fact that, like what you said, there's no hole or no question. And honestly, you feel pretty good about getting above average production from every other spot, every single spot in the infield. I, I would probably take the Mariners over over a couple of those. I, I, I would agree with that. Ryan, what's your response to that? I would defend it by saying one of the honorable mentions had Freddie Freeman. The other one had Trey Turner. And the third one had Swanson and Horner up the middle which I think is going to be the best defensive middle infield in baseball this year. So that's how I defend my three honorable mentions. All right. Better defensive middle infield than the Mets duo with McNeil and um, Francisco Lindor. Good. We now hear that. We now yeah, hear you that. said that. 
I did. Said that. Again, I think that Horner at second might might be that good. And and Swanson and Lindor might not have as big of a gap as McNeil and Horner. And I'm the biggest McNeil fan out there, but <laughs> defensively alone. As long I, as it's I might give it to them. As long as it's said into the mic. That's All right, on number record. 10. It's on record. <laughs> it's on record. Number 10. And this is where the list starts to get really good and really hard to crack. Because at number 10, the Minnesota Twins check in. And the minf- the infield goes as follows. At first base, we're looking at probably Alex Kirloff. Um, at third base, probably Jose Miranda. And then up the middle duo of Carlos Correa and Jorge Polanco. But the Twins, they have a lot of guys who could fit in this, right? You have Nick Gordon who could potentially play some second base, maybe some outfield platoon. They have a lot of options, which is why they were able to trade away Luis Arise to the Miami Marlins for Pablo Lopez. They have the backing here, and I know they have some prospects. Before we kind of get to prospect talk with Aram, Ryan, the Twins come in, feels like a pretty safe infield. Kirloff hasn't shown much. But Jose Miranda, when he debuted last year, just hit tanks, like Aram said. And then, of course, you have Carlos Correa to help. And Jorge Polanco is still a good second baseman. We expect him to have a better offensive year. I agree here. The Twins are better than any honorable mention we might have named. But I think the Mariners compete in this kind of um, realm with the Phillies. Like, these all feel pretty similar. But you have the Twins at 10. The reason I think the Twins are at 10, and we'll get to Correa in a second, I think that there's some questions, obviously, but they hedge the questions with depth because you have Royce Lewis and you have Nick Gordon. So even if you have some questions about Miranda playing third, you have some questions about Kirilov needing to really solidify himself, they could always slide Miranda back over to first and move Polanco around or Gordon. So they have so many options. And then when it comes to Correa, I think after the offseason he had, we could see the ultimate Carlos Correa fuck you season where he's just awesome this year. Like, like I, I just think that he might come out like a bat out of hell and put up an amazing season. And with that, I felt like combining his, you know, immense upside and then the depth that they had, it was the top 10 infield. Aram, it's like August that. 15th. The twins are playing the Reds. Barring injury. So no one got injured up to this point. Who's starting at third and who's starting at first base? Mm, that is really good. Because the, the, to, to the point of what Fink said, well, first of all, I, I think that point was excellent about Correa. I do think he's going to come out with, with a chip on his shoulder, and I'm really interested to see what that looks like because uh, obviously he wants to prove that he's healthy and he's got incentives to hit too uh, that that will pay him some some a good amount of money. But Looking at the infield, like I'm, I'm all in on Miranda's bat. I think, I think it plays. I honestly think he might be better at third than first, which is rare. Uh, but I, I just think he wasn't that comfortable at first base. He's played more third throughout the minor leagues. Royce Lewis is going to be back, and and by that date where they're playing the Reds, he will very much be back. They don't want to play him in the outfield. They probably want to play him in the infield. So I, I actually think that we could see Kirilov at DH, Miranda at first. And then ultimately, maybe a Royce Lewis at third. Uh, that'll be my hot take there. So I think it would go Lewis at third, shortstop Correa, second base Polanco, Miranda at first, and then Kirilov being the DH. Um, that's a nasty infield in terms of, of defense gets a little bit better there with what Lewis brings. And that offense could be really electric. So I think he could be back from the ACL tear as soon as June, maybe even earlier than that. I think when it all works itself out, you'll see the twins go up on this list. But I think as we sit here today with no Royce Lewis 
And, you know, with Alex Kirloff, who we don't even know is going to be fully healthy, we assume but that's just been his problem in the minor leagues and then in his short stints in the major leagues so far. So what brings us to number nine is, I think, a more solidified unit. And that's the Tampa Bay Rays at number nine. Isak Paredes, you have Brandon Lau and Wander Franco up the middle. And then, of course, Yanni Diaz. But Yanni Diaz has played a lot of third base, but he might end up playing a good amount of first base this year year or it could be a guy like Isak Paredes who's most likely going to play third base Aram I know you have a big read of the Tampa Bay Rays system because they always have guys coming up that we've never heard of but of course you've heard of but Ryan just looking at the major league roster for a second how do you see it slotting out well I just went by what roster resource has which is Paredes at third and Diaz at first and also I looked at the stats and Paredes was better at third base last year so it does make sense to put the better defender there and then you know, it's the same thing that we were discussing in the double play combinations episode, right? Like Wander and Lau, what does that look like if they are, you know, who they're supposed to be and they're healthy? Uh, it could really elevate them on this top 10 list. So uh, I think because it's the Rays, because they have a lot of guys they can cycle in, they're going to have a high floor and then their ceiling is is as high as any team on this list. I agree. Aram, prospect talk. <laughs> yeah, so this is a team infield-wise, I think, that is as deep as anybody. So I think they have a lot of fallback plans, and we're talking about not not counting on the on the rookies, not counting on the prospects. The Rays aren't doing that, right? They have Paredes, who they know can be at least an above-average hitter or at least an average hitter at the position. They have Yandy Diaz, who they know rakes. But And if Brandon Lau's hurt, they've got other options. I think Curtis Mead should be up there ASAP. I think that's one of the best offensive prospects in baseball. He can play third. He can play first. Uh, Jonathan Aranda rakes. I know he didn't show out the way fans had hoped right away. Aranda can play first, and he can play second. And he's a plus hit to a guy who can really swing it. So that's two guys right there that could plug right into the infield. And then they've got the the, the perfect like bench glove guy in Taylor Walls, who's a defensive wizard. So to, to Ryan's point, they can cycle so many dudes in and out of that infield that there's no way that the, even if things go wrong, they've got backup plans that I think could keep them in the top 10. I agree. I think this is the first one where it's almost you can't argue against them being in the top 10. I could see you arguing against the twins just because there's more question marks, but the only question mark for the Rays is staying healthy Mm -hmm. because they have so many options and so many good prospects. And it's not like the reds, right? Where they have some 19 year olds in high a where it's like, yeah, one day, but Curtis Mead is right now. Jonathan Aranda is right now. Like these guys can make impacts today. So Number eight, I feel like we move into another tier where there really isn't any question marks other than maybe one rookie, but then you have three solidified guys. And I think the perfect representation of that is the Texas Rangers at number eight. Nathaniel Lowe at first base, who was one of the best offensive first basemen in the sport last year. Marcus Semien, one of the best second basemen in Major League Baseball. Corey Seager, one of the best shortstops in Major League Baseball. But the question is Josh Young. And I really want to ask Arm about Josh Young. But first, Ryan, I want to ask you, because this feels really low on the list, right? Like, we're going to move up and we're going to have more debates on where these guys should rank. But in my opinion, and maybe it's my Corey Seager bias coming out, but I feel like number eight for the Rangers is just way too low. I hear you, and it's it's one of those things where we can go team by team below, and I can tell you why I had the, them ahead of the Rangers. But, look, it's a great infield. They have three guys that made our top tens with, with low, with with the two guys up the middle, 
And I've said it on this show already. I think that that double play combination could hit 80 home runs this year. And if they do that, it's probably the best double play combination in baseball. It's probably the best infield in baseball. But again, I go back to what they just did. Unfortunately, they didn't have a season uh, that we expected them to have in their first year. If they play up to their potential, they will rise up this list. But based on what they just did, based on the fact that Lowe is not a good defender at first, and we still don't really know what Young's going to be, that's ultimately why they fell eighth, because the teams ahead of them, there's just less uh, of a question based on what they just did. Yeah, um, Josh Young, you've been a Josh Young guy for a while. And in the minor leagues and even you know back in college, this guy had a special bat. But I think in his first little cameo in Major League Baseball, he had some struggles, but sometimes that's expected with a young hitter. He didn't hit the ground running immediately, but that doesn't mean it's kind of like the prospect fatigue, right? Just yeah. because he doesn't hit the ground immediately doesn't mean he's a bad player. Maybe he just needs to make some adjustments. Do you see him making those adjustments in year two? Um, mostly year one. Yeah, that's the thing, too. He was also coming off a torn labrum that you know he tore right around this time last year and then still returned back that, that same season. Uh, was kind of pressing a little bit, I think, in AAA. Crushing homers but swinging at everything to, I think, try to prove that he could get up to the big leagues before the end of the year. And got up. But I think that that pressing kind of followed him up there. And we just saw him swinging a ton. Um, If he doesn't adjust that approach, I'd be worried. But I I feel pretty confident that there's people in Josh Young's ear saying, hey, just, you know, just tone down the the high swing rate. Hey, just just lay off because he has good bat to ball skills overall. He was just super aggressive. So I think he can be figure it out. And I think he's going to be a, a solid bat next year. But I do think that that is if we're, as we're going the rest of the way, you know, this this is one of the the bigger deficiencies, I think, or question marks through the rest of this. But I, I kind of agree with Peter. I think this is an infield that should be ranked higher just on potential. But I can also understand that that Fink, you know, is just going off of what we saw last year. And the reality is, if Nathaniel Lowe isn't a 140 WRC plus guy like he was last year, basically, He's not, he's not going to break three wins. You know, he's not going to be more than a, than a three win player. So that does put a lot of pressure on the bat. And then we got to see what that middle infield duo does. I agree. I think the Rangers have more upside, but again, going back to Fink's point, it's really hard to rank them over a team with a floor like this. And that's number mm-hmm. seven, the San Diego Padres. Jake Cronenworth at first, Haseon Kim at second base, Xander Bogarts at short and Manny Machado at third base. One of the best left sides of the infield in Major League Baseball, maybe the best, considering we have Manny Machado at number one on our third base ranking and Xander Bogarts at number three on our shortstop ranking. But then, of course, you have Haseon Kim at second base, who was already a solid shortstop, kind of like Nico Horner. He's a slightly above average bat who's a wizard with the glove. But you do have Jake Cronenworth, who had a really down year, something kind of out of the ordinary for a guy like Jake Cronenworth. And I like Jake Cronenworth when he's playing every single position, when he's utilizing his Swiss Army knife, when he's playing all over the field, instead of limiting him to first base. The Yankees have done something similar with a guy like DJ LeMahieu when they have a first baseman go down and they just need to plop him there. I just feel like it diminishes his value so much because he can defend at so many different positions. But it does look like, Brian, that Jake Cronenworth will be the starting first baseman opening day for the Padres. I actually have a counter to that because I honestly think this is one of the underrated values uh, uh, that the Padres have because with the elimination of the shift, tell me what's a better right side of the infield to combat the fact that you don't have an extra infielder over there. You got Kim and Cronenworth covering a lot of ground. I actually think that makes this infield even better 
Uh, you know, Cronenworth, the OPS did drop like 86 points, I think, something along those lines last year. But he still hit 17 home runs and drove in 88. I know the counting stats aren't as important. But then when I think about his role in that team where so many guys were out and he had to step up with Machado, I think that pressure maybe limited some of his stats. Like maybe he was walking a little bit less and he struck out more because maybe he was trying to do more. But he still had a pretty good offensive season. I think he was still a four-win player. Yeah, how? I think <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's the craziest part. Like, you know, that's, I was going to say before Peter got into Cronenworth was like, I feel like everybody's sense, myself included, was that Cronenworth had, had a worse year than he had. Statistically speaking on the offensive side, it was, it was a huge step backwards, but he matched his F4 total. Like this guy still was valuable somehow. And I think it was the defense obviously that he brought to the table. But if this is your weakest link in the infield, Man, that's 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 a pretty damn good infield. And and I do like the idea of that's got to be the rangiest right side of the infield in baseball, right? A, a a good defensive second baseman at first and a good defensive shortstop at second. Um that that should combat the shift limitations pretty well. So, we were going over our top 10 first baseman and the classic TikTok comment is where was CJ Crone? And I combated that with, well, Coors Merchant 900 OPS at Coors, 650 OPS on the road. Mm. Yanni Diaz had nine home runs. Yeah, he got on base at a 400 clip, which is incredible. But a 146 WRC plus is Yanni Diaz a WRC plus merchant? And is Jake Cronenworth a war merchant? I think it's a question that needs to start being asked because how the hell did he do it, Arm? DRSOAA. I have no idea. But hell, it was a good season. By all the numbers we look at, it seems like you had a good season. And here's uh, here's again, I think they're all in the same tier because, again, one real question mark. Six is the Toronto Blue Jays. There is absolutely no question marks at first base and shortstop. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to hit bombs for the rest of his life. Boba Shett is going to have a special bat for the rest of his life. Matt Chapman did struggle on offense last year, but when we were talking on our top 10 third baseman, it's a cop-out, but he is in a contract year, which makes me think he's going to go nuclear. But Santiago Espinal is such an interesting player because Espinal is kind of used as a utility guy, but really found a home at second base. I know they have Whit Merrifield too, who can play some second base, but can also play in the outfield. Kevin Biggio is still running around somewhere. They have guys but I think it's the second base question is the biggest one because we don't know exactly who's going to play there. And if it is Santiago Espinal, what do we expect from a guy like this? Because we don't really need to talk about the superstars in this infield. I think the only question mark is second base, right, Ryan? Yeah. And I think the fact that they have wit hedges that, you know, if Espinal is not good, I mean, we could see wit bounce back and on a contender for a full year, uh, and that's ultimately why they're this high. I mean, really, why they're this high is because of Pichette and Guerrero. But why their deficiencies don't knock them down the list, it's because of what you said with Matt Chapman in a contract year and the defense that he brings. And then it's the fact that they have really three guys that can cycle at second base if one's not working. Um, and, and so that's why I put them at six. But look, six to eight, I do think there's a conversation for sure. Yeah, I think there is too. It's It's like this own tier of its own and then you get to the top five and there's a lot less questions and it's more just about marveling over talent but arm one thing i wanted to throw at you too because you know espinal didn't come off like a crazy first half and then just falter in the second half but i think it's important to note that 
pre-All-Star break, 7-11 OPS and 325 ABs. Post-All-Star break, 643 OPS. Um, I know in July he was really struggling. In September, he kind of made it up, but it was that first half where Santiago Espinal really took hold of the position and then kind of trailed off. Like, what can Blue Jays fans expect from Santiago Espinal next year? Yeah, I kind of think he's a league average hitter. You know, I think he's kind of between what we saw in that first half and that second half. And and you know, I think that's all they really need with the glove. You know, and also the, there's days where if it's a good matchup for Kevin Biggio, especially when it's a, when it's a right-handed pitcher that, that, that they like for Biggio, they can start him and he's going to add some thump, you know, like he's going to be a good platoon left-handed power bat that they can, you know, move around, including at second base. But I think Espinal, it's, it's really all about the glove and he's going to give you great defense. I, I think he's pretty much an average hitter, like it, almost the definition of average. Like I think he's going to hover around 100 WRC plus pretty much his whole career. I, I think that's pretty much what he is. Yeah, from, you know, watching Espinal enough, it seems like he's a pretty streaky hitter that, you know, some of these streaks that he has ultimately dive into his overall numbers, and then they counteract some of those low streaks, right, where he puts up a 500 OPS in a month. Like, it's just weird going through, like, his season so far. He debuted in 2020. He had a 641 OPS in his first big league season. Really small sample, only 27 games. 2021, he raked. He hit 311 in 92 games. But then last year... 267 with a 692 OBS. We just aren't exactly sure where, what we're going to get from Espinal, which I think separates them from when we get into the top five. And Can that's, I ask you guys a, a quick yeah, question, ahead. though, before we get there? Quick question. Yeah. Because I, I, I threw this out there in the article, so I'm just curious what your guys' take is when you read it or if you saw it. If I set the over-under at 150 extra base hits from Guerrero and Bichette next year, what are you guys taking? Because that's why they're six to me. Over. Over. That's that's all I'm saying. That that yeah. that's why that they are are six on this list is because of those two. Yeah, and it's yeah because I'm expecting 45 bombs from Vladdy. I'm expecting 30 to 35 home runs and 30 doubles between them. I don't know what that adds up to, but I'm sure it's close to 150. Right arm. Yeah, it's gonna be close. I, it's gonna be right there, honestly. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I, I was like yeah. 45 doubles for Bichette, 45 homers, and. You know, trying to get to 30 on, on the other side of it for each one. So it was just something that came to my head that I thought was interesting. Yeah. I love this Cleveland Guardians team, especially their infield. And they come in at number five, Josh Bell, the new addition at first base. But they also have Josh Naylor. So I guess one of them is going to be DHing. One of them is going to be playing first base. But both of them can both play the position defensively. So I'm not really worried about that at all. Andres Jimenez at second, one of the best second basemen in baseball, put up a six-war season last year. And Med Rosario has really started to get better as a shortstop, both defensively and offensively. And then you have one of the best overall players in Major League Baseball and Jose Ramirez. This is where I think the tier, it's a different tier because yeah. there's zero question marks. And it's only, the question is, who's going to play first? It doesn't really matter. But we might as well have that debate of who we think is going to play the first base position because I know they've been playing Naylor there and it's not like Naylor's been doing poorly. Naylor had a great year last year, but Josh Bell is that player who's been there, done that, has been in the league longer, of course, and, and was pretty good last year. Arm, I guess I'll go to you first. Yeah. How do you see the first base position? Because I think the rest is clear. Yeah, I think Naylor, I think it's Naylor's gig. You know, I, I think given that he's played there, he's comfortable with the infield and, and they're kind of used to him. But also the fact that Josh Bell is is not the best defender. Uh, he he had a really rough year defensively last year. And 
I think that they'd probably prefer to keep him in the DH role. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he was looking for a job where he's not going to be asked to play that much first base. So I think, I think we're going to see him mostly DH. Ryan, I know you were diving into the splits with Josh Bell because they're pretty severe, at least when he was playing with Washington versus when he got traded over to San Diego. Like, what should Guardians fans expect from Josh Bell this year? Let's say if he just plays in a DH role. Well, look, over the last two seasons, 300 games, I think he was like just over a 120 WRC plus. Now, you look at what he did last year. It was like 143 with Washington and then like in the 80s with San Diego. You combine the two, you got right around that that number, a little over 120. And I think with that, he's going to improve this team pretty significantly. I think he's a, a more feared bat and more established bat to back up Jose Ramirez and give him some protection. And then, you know, Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario up the middle, I guess no one's more qualified to talk about them than me, considering I saw both of them at the start of their career. And with Ahmed Rosario, you were talking about J.P. Crawford being that line of a shortstop. It might be Ahmed Rosario, too. I think he's right there. I think there he's better. Where, yeah, I mean, he's 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 a 280 hitter. He's not going to walk, but he, he's going to give you some, some good at-bats. He's going to go two for four a lot. And he's got himself to be an average shortstop, and that allows Jimenez to be this kind of superstar at the second base position instead of being stretched a little more thin and short. So number four is the Atlanta Braves. And I'm looking at the Atlanta Braves infield, and I love the Atlanta Braves infield. I don't want to take that away. Like, we're splitting hairs here. But when we talk about teams that have a question mark, they are one of them. And... There's a second baseman, Ozzie Albies, coming off an injury. Matt Olson did have a down year. I expect him to be much better. But then, of course, you have Austin Riley. I would argue that the Guardians could be in this conversation at four. The Blue Jays could be. I think the Rangers, like, I don't know about the Braves this high, especially when there's almost no question marks, especially with the Guardians, because you do have Von Grissom at shortstop. And we just don't know what we're going to get from him. Aram, I know you've been... Talking about Von Grissom, it feels like once a week on this podcast. But have you done any more digging, any more spring training over reactions? <laughs> like, as you sit here today, because things can change. Like, opinions can change about a guy as we move closer to the season. Like, are you more excited than at the beginning when we first found out that Dansby was going and that Vaughn was going to be the shorts up? Or maybe are you less excited from something that you've seen? You know, obviously, it's it's a it's not going to be what they got from Dansby last year. But what I'll say, he actually made a nice play the other day in spring training. I, I watched every single ball he took in the minor leagues last year before getting called up at short at shortstop. And I just I think he can fully hold it down. I don't know what he's going to do with the bat. I won't pretend I can know what he's going to do with the bat. I think he's going to be decent. But even if he's a 100 WRC plus guy and a league average defender, so it's, it's literally just put him at that at shortstop is the star power of the rest of this infield enough to put him at four. And I think that's the real question because I don't think Von Grissom's going to be a liability. Like that's one thing I could say with a lot of confidence is he will hold it down to, like well enough. I don't know how much value he's going to give beyond that, you know, and that's where it's, it's kind of up to him. Cause the way I was thinking about it, would I rather have Nathaniel Lowe, Corey Seager and Marcus Semyon, or Vladdy Chapman and Bichette, over Riley, Olsen, and Albies. I might. But then they all have these young rookies or a guy like Santiago Espinal manning the other position. And it's not like the Braves have a ton of depth here either because we're just looking at the four, and maybe that's what these rankings are based off of, and we're kind of just talking about depth. 
but it doesn't seem like the Braves have that backup, like a Whit Merrifield with the Toronto Blue Jays or someone like that who can easily slot in. Maybe am I forgetting someone? That's where I would actually lower the Braves Arcia. on this list. Orlando yeah. Arcia, I guess. Like They just, not- they don't really have much. So if like either Olsen or Riley goes down, like they could be in a little bit of trouble here. Um, but overall, that that would be my one gripe with the list so far is that the Rangers are a little bit too low. And I think the Braves are a little bit too high, even though I love the Braves. I think they could win the World Series. But this list, I'm a little bit lower on them. Give me a pitch, Ryan. Give me why you thought number four. Well, I think that it comes down to the corners. And at one point, I was thinking about doing top 10 corner infields. And, you know, Olsen and Riley would have been maybe second on that list behind Goldie and Arenado. So it it comes down to what I think they're going to get from the corners. And then thinking that, you know, if he's on the field, Ozzy Albies is going to be productive at second base. What's Grisham going to be at shortstop? I think there is a chance that he can be an above average shortstop, but it really does hinge on those two guys at the corners. It's the fact that Austin Riley is now a perennial MVP candidate. It's the fact that Matt Olson, in a down year, still hit 34 bombs and drove in over 100. And that's a, considered a down year for him because we saw what he did in 2021. And the fact that he could get better, and instead of hitting wherever he was in the mid 200s, he could be closer to 280 again and getting on base at a 360, 370 clip and hitting 40 bombs. And you can combine that with Riley. And that's just going to raise the floor of this infield. So to me, it's, if I was to say who's going to be better this year, Matt Olson and Austin Riley or Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. I don't know. I think I would hedge more towards the Braves duo that that's just me, but I also understand the upside that the Rangers possess, and that's the fun of this conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Arm, you have anything before we move on to number three? I think that was the best way you could put that. Um, I, You know how I feel about Riley. I think Wilson's going to be uh, a step up, you know, I think mean, closer to what we saw with his final year in Oakland. Those two guys could be one of the best offensive duos in, in baseball. So that's a, it's a sound argument from Fink. My only thing, I'll argue one more thing for the Blue Jays: Bichette and Vladdy, or Riley and Olson. That's the I would one take I was probably Bichette, and yeah. then Chapman versus Albies. You might take Chapman. I would. Maybe we, we did uh, we did snub the Blue Jays a little bit. Maybe they should have slid into the the top five. I also will say, it, part of this too is probably protecting against my Mets bias. Where if <laughs> I had the Braves too low, I thought people would jump on me like, "Oh, you have the Mets three <laughs> and the Braves seventh, and you had the Phillies off the list." You know, you're just full of shit because you're the Mets guy. So maybe that also is part of it. And Albies was 30 and 100 his last full season. So, you know, I mean, if he's that, again, you're taking this infield, I think, pretty easily. And I'm an Albies guy, so I'm good with having Albies there. I mean, it's we're splitting hairs anyway. Number three, New York Mets. This is where the list gets real good. Real, real good. Because the only question mark is Eduardo Escobar. And if you ask Mets fans, he's the worst player on planet Earth. When in reality... He's fine. And then you combine him with Pete Alonzo, the best run producer in Major League Baseball. I thought the coolest stat from that first base article um, that I think you wrote, Ryan, uh, Pete Alonzo, 187 WRC plus with runners in scoring position last year. I mean, that's incredible. No wonder he had 131 RBIs and is consistently over 100 with 40 bombs. And then you have Jeff McNeil, our number two second baseman, and Francisco Lindor, who I think is the number one shortstop. And then you can have a debate of two to five, but I think it's Lindor. Love the Mets at three. I'll just give you 30 seconds to just shout and scream and be happy. 
I might need more than 30 seconds because also <laughs> you, you failed to mention too another part of, of what I was talking about. Alonzo cut his strikeout rate to like 14% with runners in scoring position. So he shortens up in those spots too when he gets the two strikes and, and just finds a way to get that run in, whether it's sack flies or just finding a hole to get a hit. Uh, look, Alonzo has led the league in home runs and RBI since his debut. We have McNeil and Lindor as the best double play combination in baseball. That's why they are third on this list. If Brett Beatty was their starting third baseman, and I think he will be, and if he is what Aaron believes is going to be and I believe he's going to be, this Mets infield could be the best in baseball. And I can really see by June, if not earlier, Eduardo Escobar is platooning with Beatty. He's better from the right side. So he's just facing left-handed pitching. He got Beatty starting against all the righties, and that's just going to take this infield to another level. Um, yeah, one, of the, to, to one your, of the biggest Brett Beatty guys. I'm I'm all in on Beatty. I mean, I this guy just just absolutely rakes and hits the ball hard and and can hold it down at third. And to your point, Peter, though, even if he isn't ready for whatever reason, even though I say with a high degree of confidence he is, he Eduardo Escobar wasn't that bad. Like again, like no. I think that's a really important point here. He had a 2.3 F4, which like he was coming off a season where he had a 2.6 F4. What, what what were Mets fans expecting here? Like I know that it was a slightly <laughs> down OPS compared to, to what he had the year before, but the WRC plus was one point off. Um, he still hit 20 bombs. Like, were you expecting something else, Fink? I don't understand why why fans were so frustrated with Eduardo Escobar. Well, it's because you look at, if you didn't watch his whole season, you look at the final numbers and he played to his, his career norm, but he put up like a 176 WRC plus in September and hit like nine of his home runs. So it was really that last month that yeah. got him there. And people are remembering him having some dreadful months before that. I also want to mention, you know, Escobar had lost his starting job to Louis Guillaume. Uh, they were platooning and then Guillaume got hurt and that allowed Escobar to have that September. Guillaume is one of the best utility infielders in the game and Buck Showalter love I love him and Buck Showalter the only person who loves Louis Guillaume more than me is maybe his parents and Buck Showalter that's it Buck Showalter (laughs) called him uh, his irregular starter the other day because of the fact that they can play him at third at short at second and they're even going to play him at first this year and he got on base at a 350 clip and for his career he's gotten on base at a 350 clip he gives you good at bats if he's batting ninth and playing great defense for you you know, if any of their guys go down, they, they can plug them in and be pretty comfortable. And they have Mark Vientos. Yeah. Like they have a lot of good young players. Where's Mark Vientos? And, and I'm sorry, and. Jordan. Remember, Ronnie Mauricio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't yeah. forget our spring training overreactions. They have so, Jordan in, in the making. Aram, Ronnie Mauricio, Jordan Alvarez, basically, Brett Beatty, and Mark Vientos. Like, which of those guys should Mets fans expect to make an impact this year? Beatty. I think Beatty's gonna gonna really, really, really uh produce. It, it, it he figured it out last year. This is a guy that that hit it hard and hit it on the ground. I know you just talked about Brian Hayes last episode, and you literally said, like, you begged him basically the way I begged Ozzie Albies to stop switch hitting. You begged Brian Hayes to hit the ball in the air. Um, I was doing the same thing on the prospect side with Brett Beatty the last couple of years, and, and Fink and I always talked about it. Because it was so hard, but on the ground, he cut his ground ball rate by like 10% last year. And we saw the the extra base hits skyrocket. And it seems like that is just going to continue to happen. Um, We would have saw it more if he didn't get banged up at the end of the year. And he's already off to a great start in spring training. I I think this is a rookie of the year dark horse, too, because like he he just really can can impact the baseball and has a good feel to hit. 
I think this is a new tier. And the reason I say that's a new tier is because every single position is loaded and I don't have any question marks. Number two, St. Louis Cardinals. Paul Goldschmidt at first, the NL MVP. Nolan Arenado at third. What he finished second or third in NL MVP voting? Third. Third. Tommy Edmond put up almost a six-war season between second base and shortstop and only looks to be getting better offensively. Nolan Arenado called Tommy Edmond the best defender he's ever played with. Now, I know he's coming over from Colorado, so it's not like he had a ton of good fielders to look at, but I think that's incredibly high praise. A guy like Nolan Arenado, who's played on Team USA teams, like has played with a lot of guys and said Tommy Edmond is the best defender he's ever played with. And we haven't even gotten to Brendan Donovan, who was, what would he put up a 400 OBP, who is at least close to there, can play all over the diamond. I love his profile, right? From a batted ball standpoint to a plate discipline standpoint, Brendan Donovan should be a big factor here. And then you have the potential of Nolan Gorman, who hits the living piss out of the ball, but it's just about hitting the living piss out of the ball more than he does currently. They have so many options, not to mention a guy like Juan Yepes can play on the corners. Like they have so many good fallback options, but then the actual options that are going to start opening day are incredible. Like the St. Louis Cardinals easily should be number two. And that's why this, even though the Mets have a great infield, you still do have the question marks at third arm. There's no question marks with the Cardinals. And then I think it's just about talking about their prospects because why not? Like they could make an impact. Well, first of all, the the weakest link for the Cardinals infield is a guy with a 394 on base percentage last year. Like it's, it's just that simple. Like that's absurd. And then they've got the other options too. Alec Burleson can even play first. God forbid anything happens to Goldie Bishop. So another guy that technically plays the infield. Um, and then of course they've got, you know, Mason Wayne and other prospects too, but it's so hard to believe that this is not the number one infield. And, and I'm not disagreeing with things. I agree with these rankings here, one and two, but it's like, how the hell is this not the number one infield? It's, it's how many war across the board here. What was Goldie like six Arenado was seven. Donovan was was three and Edmund was five and a half like that. That's that's stupid. That is stupid. And I think what we should do instead of like just keep hammering how good the Cardinals are. Let's bring in our number one team and just kind of have a debate on who we'd rather have, because number one is the Houston Astros. You got Jose Abreu at first. Remember when he won the MVP in 2020 and then hit 300 wow. last year and finished fifth in F4 among first basemen? Yeah, he's still hitting. Jose Altuve was the fourth best hitter in Major League Baseball by WRC+. Plus. Not fourth at second base, fourth in Major League Baseball. Jeremy Pena established himself as one of the best defenders at the position and then won the ALCS MVP and the World Series MVP. And then, of course, you have Alex Bregman, who just brings his lunch to the ballpark every day and just hits, just hits, and has hit his entire career. Yeah, he had that little conspiracy thing where he couldn't hit breaking balls that well. That's thrown out the window. Arm, I was talking to Jack on the last podcast when we were talking about third base, and I was like, my Yankee biased brain, I have nothing else to say anymore because they beat the conspiracy theory. So everything that was harboring in my soul, what am I going to say now? No, they beat the case. They beat the case a hundred percent. I mean, to see what Bregman did last year, I think is a, is a huge thing that puts him over the top, right? If Bregman was like, kind of like the banged up form he was in 2021, like we might be saying, okay, it's a little closer, but he's right back to five and a half win season last year. He's right back to, to hitting bombs, getting on base and always playing good defense there. 
Um, ultimately, what are the separators here for you guys? Because I, I think there's a couple of things that it boils down to for me, but I, you you have the Cardinals who have two top three MVP finalists, one of them being the one that won it. Um, and then you've got that middle infield duo that is just defensively incredible and, and good with the bat. But then with the Astros, you know, you have what you just mentioned, Peter, what you just broke down there. Like, what is the biggest distinguishing factor between the Astros and the Cardinals? Because I think that's just an interesting conversation in itself. Well, I'll tell you the reason why I went Astros was the addition of Jose Abreu into an infield that just won the World Series. And thinking about what he could bring to their lineup, I was just kind of playing with it in my head. I'm like, all right, if you could now slot in you know, Abreu where Bregman was hitting and move Bregman into the two hole and bump Pena down the order. I mean, they can go Altuve to Bregman to Jordan to Abreu to Kyle Tucker. I mean, it's maybe just the fact that the Astros as a team are nasty, but that infield is so good. And it's splitting hairs Cardinals versus the, the Astros. I could have gone either way. I really thought about it. Ultimately. I just felt like, you know, Goldie and Arenado, better than Altuve Bregman, but how much better? And then if I broke it the other way, Edmund Donovan versus Pena Abreu, I just felt like Abreu was the best player out of the bunch. Thought that Pena, you know, I already did the whole Pena Edmund thing with Colby. So I don't even get into that, but I think yeah. Pena is the better shortstop. And, and so with that, that's why I leaned Astros, but I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. If you told me the Carls are better, I think they're about even, honestly. It could be 1A, 1B. So what I did right now, I don't know if anyone watching on YouTube is like, what the hell is he writing down? So what I'm writing down on a little post-it note, I don't have my iPad like that nerd jack. Um, I have the Astros and the Cardinals. And what I was thinking is we go by each position and we give them five stars, right? Or four stars, three stars, two stars. We'll work our way down and then we'll add up the stars. That's, okay. I feel like the best way, because it's like, yes, Altuve is better than Donovan, but like that matters because that gap matters for what the other gaps are, because if we just go position by position, it doesn't really solve anything because we were probably going to get two to two. And then we're just going to sit here, you know, not having an answer. So Astros, Abreu and Goldie, I'm going to give five stars to Goldie. I think that's yeah. pretty fair, right? Yeah, five stars to Goldie. Do we give four to Abreu? I, I think so. He's closer to a four-star. Yeah. Four-star guy. All right. Altuve, I'm giving him a five-star. Five stars. I mean, how could he not? Is Donovan a three or four-star second baseman? It's I think a he's three, three right now. We just need to see. We need to see. But he's a three. No, and we're not doing decibels. We got to make a decision here on the Just Baseball show. I think he slugged under 400 last year. He's so a three. I, three stars good. It's better three, than average. Three stars great. Good. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an above-average starter. I think that's what he is. Yeah. Jeremy Pena. Probably See, three. Four. I'm an Edmund over Pena guy. Okay. I am an Edmund over Pena guy. Defensively, I might take Edmund. Like if Aaron Otto's yeah. saying he's the best defender he's ever had, he had more defensive. I mean, metrically, he was than better. Jeremy Pena did. Mm-hmm. Metrically, he was better, but of course, it was between shortstop and second base. But what makes me feel good about that defense is when he moved over to short, the defensive metrics went out the window again. Like it's just wherever he plays, he's going to be one of the best defenders at his position. And he had a better WRC plus last year. Like I would take, I would put Edmund as a four-star shortstop, and I would put Pena as a three-star shortstop today. It could change by the end of the year. I could learn to eat those words, but right now, as we stand today, when we're making this list, yeah. I give Edmund a four, and I give Pena three. 
probably wouldn't be paying you like a 3.5 and like yeah, Edmund a 3.8. But yeah. for the for this discussion, I'm giving Pena a three and Edmund a four. Where do you stay on? Because I know I what can, Ryan thinks. I can sign off on that. I I think Pena has more upside. If I if I'm kind of building a franchise, I'd, I'd really think about you know who I'd prefer, and I strongly consider Pena. But yeah, for for this coming season, I think it's very likely that Edmund's going to accumulate more WAR. Um, I, I agree with the star breakdown there. Right, uh, like Ryan Edmund uh, put Ryan, up a five Ryan and a half score last year. He put up a five and a half WAR last year. Jeremy Pena could hit a second year wall. It's very possible, right? We saw in the second half he really struggled offensively, but then he just fixed some swing stuff and then just unleashed. And he could just carry that over into this season. Be awesome. But I think there's always that possibility like Vladdy didn't see him anything wrong with Vladdy but he had a little bit of a down year offensively in his second year we're not worried about him but it happens it's not impossible for that to happen with Edmund he's been here and I think he's the slightly better defender that's why I go Edmund but and let me can, I'll bottle up my argument I'll let you keep the stars as they are but and I encourage people to read my article to get my full breakdown but there was a hot streak in the beginning of the season, a hot streak at the end of the season last year. And other than that, there was four months in the middle where Tommy Edwin was basically like an 85 WRC plus guy. And he posted a 90 WRC plus the previous two years. I just think that there's a very good chance. He's still a slightly below average hitter that can get hot here and there. Who's a great defender at short. Whereas with Jeremy Pena, I think that he has more upside because he can have the 25 home run power. But I'll leave it as it is as far as the stars for this conversation. Tommy Edmond also stole 32 bags last year. That is important. Like he, what he makes up for with the home runs, because he did hit 13 last year. It's not like he hit seven, stole 32 bags. So we'll have Edmond. So guess what, boys? It's all tied up as we get into third base with Arenado and Bregman. Well, then it's tied. We could say that Arenado is a five and Bregman is a five, which would make it kind of a tie. But the slight edge, of course, would go to the Cardinals here because Arenado is better than Alex Bregman. But you could also make the argument that Donovan is a four. You can make the argument that Pena is a four. But I think from what we've done so far, the Cardinals get the slight edge, right, Arm? From through that exercise, yes. Yes. Um, yes. That said, that said, um, Bregman, Bregman's a big, yeah. big X factor in this, but I also it's, it's just Pena versus Edmund is, is ironically what this, what this shit comes down to, which is what Fink is, has like a master's degree in at this point. And, and he's been comparing them to all off season as an article on that too, which is a great read. I, yeah, I, I like the, I just feel safer with the Astros overall with just what they do, but I, I, I could really see it either way. I could see it either way, but there's a legit case that Tommy Edmund and Brandon Donovan up the middle are like below average offensively next year. And if that's the case, like that's not the best infield in baseball. It's really good defensively and a really good overall. But if you have a middle infield, that's below average offensively. Like that's, that's kind of tough. Yeah. I'd almost say, do the Cardinals have more upside and do the Astros have a higher floor? Because I think Altuve, Abreu, Bregman, yeah, we know. Kind of know what you're getting. But the only two players that we absolutely know are Goldie and Arenado. Because yeah. Edmund, we don't yeah. know for sure. We're more positive because we have more data to back it, but we aren't totally positive. And Brendan Donovan, we aren't sure. We can say that we are, but everyone knows that anything can happen in baseball. That's why it's the best sport in the world. That's why it's not scripted. That's why, 
you know, we do preseason stuff and then we find out what we learned at the end. I would just lean the Cardinals slightly, but it's a great debate. Like it's it's an incredible list. I'm so glad that we did this. Yeah. Overall, let's just let's just recap it. Number one was the Houston Astros, number two, St. Louis Cardinals, three New York Mets, four Atlanta Braves, five, we got the Cleveland Guardians. And number six, we have the Toronto Blue Jays, number seven, San Diego Padres, eight Texas Rangers, nine Tampa Bay Rays. 10 is the Minnesota Twins, and then our honorable mentions, Chicago Cubs, Los Angeles Dodgers, and Philadelphia Phillies. My one real issue, because splitting hairs with the Rangers, splitting hairs with the Blue Jays and the Braves, my one issue is the Mariners not being on this. I think they have to be on this, and the Yankees should be in the top five now that IKF and Josh Donaldson are on the left side of the infield. And the Marlins have something to say with Joey Wendell. and Don't sleep on Arias Wendell up the middle. That's all Don't I got to say. Can't do it. Don't sleep. But has it been, has this article been released yet, Ryan? It'll be up, uh, you know, like I'll publish it on uh, whatever day. What's what's today, guys? I'm, I'm lost. Today's, Today's Tuesday. Tuesday. As we're recording morning. Tuesday. Wednesday morning, it'll be up. As we're recording, can you do me one favor and add the Mariners in the honorable mentions just to make me feel good? I mean, shouldn't I snub them if we spent this whole podcast talking about them being snubbed? <laughs> oh, I guess, sure. Mariners fans, I'm with you. I think you guys are honorable mentions, maybe even top 10. Blame Ryan. His DMs are open. You can find his Twitter in the episode description. Send him all the hate mail. I'll join you. I'll send him DMs with you. But this is a great episode, guys. This is a ton of fun. Great list, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Definitely go check out Who's Better Baseball. It's Ryan's new podcast. He he hosts a debate show. Just recently did Tommy Edmond versus Jeremy Pena. Like all these really fun debates where people like to listen to people splitting hairs because that's what it is. It is such a blast. I love the new podcast. Of course, Arm just opens up his bank. It seems like four days a week for prospects, but he's got much more with new prospect interviews coming up on the call up. I know I'm out here not gambling my face off and you got to go check out that podcast world baseball classic preview is coming it should probably be available thursday um just fantasy baseball shows doing really well the best way to support just baseball however is to get yourself some merch that is in the episode description and if you don't want to spend a dime rate this podcast five stars whether it be on spotify or apple podcast and then of course if you're watching on youtube hit us with a like Comment your top 10 infields in Major League Baseball and hit that subscribe button. Arm Ryan, anything we got to clean up before we say goodbye? Nope. Uh, I got nothing. I just just don't sleep on the Marlins middle infield of Arias and Wendell. It's going to be a problem. I'm fast asleep. And with that, thank you, everybody.